This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The national movement to reduce or eliminate cash bail continues to spark heated discussion. Several states, including New Jersey and Alaska, have instituted bail reform. Other states, such as California, have repeatedly seen attempts at reform fail, either in the legislature or at the ballot box. Proponents argue that bail criminalizes poverty. Bail doesn't keep the most dangerous in jail. It keeps the poorest. Opponents point to reported instances where bail reform was followed by an uptick in crime. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're going to be looking at the ongoing debate over bail reform and the pivotal role that courts play in this discussion. Some of the questions that we'll explore include, what are courts doing now about bail reform? What role does generating revenue have in the debate over bail? How do risk assessment algorithms play into this discussion? What advice do our panelists have for the rest of us regarding courts and bail reform? We're joined today by the Honorable Paul Farr, judge with the Harriman, Sandy, and Alta Municipal Courts in Salt Lake County, Utah. Elizabeth Rambo, trial court administrator for the Lane County Trial Courts in Eugene, Oregon. The Honorable Ed Spillane, presiding judge of the Municipal Court in College Station, Texas. Courtney Whiteside, court administrator for the Municipal Court in St. Louis, Missouri. And Alexandria Poole, interim senior trial court attorney with the Neighborhood Defender Service of Detroit. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. How serious is the issue of inequity in bail decisions? And what is your court doing now regarding bail reform? Judge Spillane? Well, I think uh, it is a serious issue. And I think any time if you go to a jail and see that those awaiting trial particularly, of course, on nonviolent offenses, are indigent, are poor, especially if you compare them to the economic status of just in general people who uh, are charged with criminal offenses, that's a problem. And I think that you can go to most jails, I would guess, and see that. Uh, The way that I've tried to deal with that is the cases in my court and the cases that I get to make a determination on bail are nonviolent misdemeanors for the most part. So I actually grant a personal bond on all my cases. I eliminate cash cash bonds or um, surety bonds uh, with bail bondsmen out of the process. I will hold people who are charged with intoxication offenses I will hold them still, it's always under 24 hours, but I will hold them uh, until they're fit to leave. And also with an assault case type case, I will wait as well to hold to see if the victim wants to file a temporary restraining order and and other matters. But for the minus level of assault, which is not bodily injury, but it's it's, a offensive contact, I will still release. So the way that in practical terms, I'm dealing with it is releasing people on nonviolent misdemeanors with a personal bond. Liz Rambo? 
I think that inequality in release decision-making is a very serious issue, and particularly where the release decisions are specifically tied to bail. In Oregon, we are a security release state. We no longer have the word bail in our statute. We have the word security. And the posting of security is a 10% deposit on security to the courts. We do not have um, bail bondsmen or bail bonds um, businesses here in Oregon. So it's a little bit different conversation. In terms of my court specifically, we have had a pretrial release program in Eugene, Oregon for our circuit court since 1975. Um, that program has been tasked with interviewing all defendants booked into the jail and making release decisions um, originally based on sort of a subjective interpretation of their risk in the community. But more recently, and since the early 2000s, sort of evolving into what you were talking about earlier in terms of a risk assessment tool that helps us provide a more score-based decision about whether that person has a risk for failure to appear or for recidivating in the community in a dangerous way. So Oregon is in the middle of this process. It's a very long process to make reforms in release decision-making. Just this last session, Oregon passed Senate Bill 48. And I think I'm looking to the next two years for a really vigorous conversation about how we handle it here. Judge Farr? It is a serious and important issue. I'd like to rephrase it just a little bit that rather than inequality in the bell decision, I think the way we have historically made bell decisions results in inequality. And specifically with those with financial means and those without, a historical practice could see, for example, a murder suspect with great financial means get out within days, but somebody on a shoplifting charge without financial means could sit in jail for weeks or months waiting for a court date. And so that's the inequality that can arise. And it, it's not just about inequality either, but also effectiveness of the criminal justice system and, and public safety. They're all very important issues tied with that. Here in Utah, similar to what Liz was talking about, the, the state has been involved in this for the past few years. It does take time. We actually had a statute two years ago passed uh, that uh, would affect some of these changes. And then the legislature reversed course and, and undid some of that about a year ago, but the, the judiciary is still on track. Ultimately, we are trying to move away from monetary bill uh, using risk assessment tools. And again, looking at uh, public safety and flight risk, trying to hold those individuals that present a serious public safety risk and then release those that don't. And I think ultimately what we're finding is that those decisions have very little to do with how much money a person has. And so hopefully we can make smarter decisions going forward. What sort of statistical reporting does your court produce regarding bail decision-making? Liz? Since we have a really vigorous pretrial release program that does um, release interviews, um, risk assessments, and um, supervision programs, we have all the stats that go around those things. So we know the number of interviews we do, the number of releases that we do, the number of type of release. For example, we have a default to uh, recognizance release for low-risk offenders. Um, we have conditional releases for moderately risky offenders, and it's only the truly high-risk offenders that would have on them usually any kind of security set although we are currently still a right to security state for all crimes except murder and treason. So you could actually have those folks still pay their way out. 
up to those two things. So we're doing number of releases, type of releases, uh, whether or not the person reoffends on release based on the type of release that they're on. We know our uh, failures on release agreements. We know our daily population and supervision. I mean, on and on, and everything that you would have in a release program. Courtney Whiteside. We don't really keep any official statistical data on bail and bond matters. I'm aware of patterns that, that go on in our court uh, because I pay attention to them, review, uh, review the decisions, and look at uh, case data in general, but we don't keep any specific uh, bail and bond data we aren't required to at this juncture. The question of systemic bias in the justice system has been hotly discussed over the last year. It raises the question of whether courts should be looking more closely at potential bias and bail outcomes. Does your court statistically report bail decisions by race, gender, age, and socioeconomic status? Should courts report this information? Alexandria Poole? So I'm not very certain if my court reports that that information currently. I, I don't think they do. Um, however, I do think that it's very important for them to do so. Um, so that we can see the sort of trends for the types of cases um, where a certain bail is set, um, what type of bail is set, what type of charges, because that is something that is very important in terms of reforming the, the, the justice system just in general, and of course, in terms of bail reform. Um, I do know that at, here in Wayne County, there was a VERA report um, that was issued that does deal with Wayne County. And I do know that it discusses bail and racial disparities. So that is something that is that is on the forefront in terms of um, knowledge that this is something that is important. But again, I don't think it's being currently something that is being reported, but I do believe that it is something that should be. Courtney? Well, I, I think, you know, in, in reporting those things is, is a great idea, but I think it's indicative of a larger, a larger topic. Uh, in many states, uh, the race isn't even on a, a, the driver's license. So when an officer is writing a ticket, uh, that is a, a, an assumption or, or a judgment that is made at that time as far as one's race or ethnicity. Lots of questions surrounding gender, gender bias. So to, in, in order to keep those statistics, which many courts, the majority of courts that I'm aware of are not required to keep those statistics, we're gonna to have to get much more specific on the information that we gather to make sure it's reliable data and then um, have some type of central repository to even deal with the data once we acquire it. Judge Spillane? You know, definitely uh, bias involved in bail decisions is, is important. You know, the whole point of bail is, is number one, you're dealing with individuals who are legally innocent and the determination really should be based on the offense, whether they're an actual danger to the public or also courts are concerned about people later appearing in court. So I would think, especially socioeconomic data tied in with who's in jail awaiting trial is really, really important because I think, especially with a cash bail system, you will see that who's in jail is very much tied in with socioeconomic status. But as to your specific question, a lot of courts have that information 
or they're available, they're public information, uh, but we are not reporting all that to the state. Uh, generally, I think most states have courts report kind of result-oriented, like how many dismissals, how many convictions, what type of cases are filed, perhaps how many cases where you're setting bail. But uh, those other type of information, while they're available, they're not um, generally being reported. Judge Farr? So in Utah, uh, judges are required to conduct a paper review of these cases within 24 hours of an arrest to make release and probable cause determinations. And it's done through an electronic system and it's unified throughout the state. Judges receive a text message that an individual's arrested. We then log on and, and view the information there. There is a probable cause affidavit typically, and in those cases where we have a risk assessment tool, we'll get that information. It does include age and sex, and in some cases, it'll include some financial information just in broad categories to help a judge determine if somebody does have the ability to, to post bail. Race is not included in those. So unless it was specifically mentioned as, as a descriptive factor by an officer, uh, we actually don't know the race of that individual and make that determination without that. Uh, I think that's actually helpful doing it you know, blind that way, basically. I suppose it, it would be helpful to track that information for statistical purposes and for knowing after the fact. But again, as part of the release decision, that's not information that comes before the, the judge. And I think it's appropriate to do it that way. Now, a 2021 study from Loyola University reported that increases in defendants being released without bail was correlated to an increase in crime in the city of Chicago. Does bail reform lead to increasing crime? Judge Spillane? Well, my initial answer and is no, it doesn't. But, you know, obviously a cautionary word, you know, bail reform, I've watched it, especially the last five years and in states like New Jersey and New York, it was applauded as you get and, and by bail reform because bail reform in texas means something different bail reform generally means trying to eliminate cash often cash bonds and socioeconomic status as a reason why people are held you know we saw crime go down now we're seeing crime uh, a rise in crime and so people are saying well look at you know uh, the bail reform's causing that generally i think a well efficient bail system and, and efficient courts can lead to, we would hope, a decrease in disorder in society. But courts are not, you know, as their primary function, a prospective crime elimination type of organization. So I think it's really used kind of demagogically in terms of, you know, look at this, you know, you, and often when you look at it, you'll, you'll see someone will point to someone who was released and committed a crime, and then they go back and blame the judge. Now, obviously, you know, if someone committed a violent offense and they were released, I, I can understand the criticism when they later commit that violent offense. But generally, I, I have not seen anywhere where bail reform directly causes um, an increase in crime. And I think it does actually cause an increase in people showing up to court. Now, it, you know, in Texas, in terms of, 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 you know, what is called bail reform, they're calling bail reform, trying to hold people in jail. Actually, in Texas, based on our constitution, there are very few offenses other than capital murder where you can hold someone without bond. 
So, you know, judges inevitably, at least in Texas, are always setting bond on almost every case, um, except the most egregious, which is capital murder. But even regular murder, you have to set bond. So, Alexandria? I also would say no, I don't believe bail reform leads to an increase in crime. Um, I was a little puzzled by the, the study, the 2021 study for a second. And then after thinking about it, there's a lot of things that I believe that are factors, um, if that is the case in Chicago in 2021, um, because we are in the midst of a pandemic. There's COVID, there's a lot of other things that are impacting if there has been an increase of crime at all. And so between the pandemic, people are unemployed, there's housing issues, there are public health, of course, an overarching public health issue that could be contributing to that specifically in Chicago. But overall, no, I don't believe that um, bail reform generally increases crime. I do believe that it does incentivize um, clients to come to court, um, take ownership over their case, feel like they have a say. It does something, I believe, a little bit more psychologically that's um, more positive. So, no. Judge Farr? Uh, and I'm going to give some extremes. I think clearly if everyone arrested were to be released without condition, it would result in an increase of crime. And conversely, if we were to hold everyone arrested without bail, we could certainly decrease crime. However, the, the first approach ignores important issues of public safety, and, and the second ignores constitutional rights and protections. And so I think the trick is to find the appropriate balance. Uh, bail reform is certainly not a, a simple issue, a lot of complexities. And so when we talk about bail reform and does it work or does it increase crime, I think it really depends on the specifics of that program, and it has to be looked at. I am confident that there are ways that we can maintain public safety while also making our system more fair. And I think if all stakeholders get together and have that conversation, those answers can be found. And it's important not to paint uh, anything with too broad of a brush. Liz? I wish I'd said what Judge Farr said. I completely <laughs> and 100% agree. I, I, when I read this question, I thought to myself, well, I wonder what their program was like in Chicago and what did they do did they just eliminate bail and then, you know, Judge Farr's one side, <laughs> did they just eliminate the bail and just let everybody out? Because we all know that, that there is a, a sweet spot in the middle of understanding people's risk for certain things and then making appropriate release decisions for that risk. And sometimes that includes security still in Oregon and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I don't think there's a, a right answer uh, to this question, except that I think that a properly run program reforming and finding best practices in the properly run program where it led to increases in crime should be reviewed and refined and improved. Does your court use risk assessment algorithms to assist judges in making release decisions? And how effective do you think it's been? Judge Farr? So the judiciary in Utah uses the LSIR, the level of services in inventory revised. Uh, it's unified throughout the state. And prior to the judiciary's effort at bail reform, uh, the judge generally received nothing more than a probable cause statement. And oftentimes that had very limited information. So having the information contained in the LSIR uh, has certainly been an improvement and has that background information. Uh, Utah is also participating in some studies currently to determine the effectiveness of that tool. Uh, with some cases it is available and some is not. Again, we're trying to make those determinations. 
what I can say personally from making those decisions is I am confident that I'm making better and more informed decisions as a judge as a result of that tool than I was before. You know, is it perfect or how effective is it? That's something that will be confirmed in studies, but it, it certainly, I guess it'd be like asking me to build a house. Am I better at building a house with a hammer versus not? It, it certainly helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad we have the tool. Judge Spillane? As I mentioned, I, I mostly handle misdemeanor cases, nonviolent, and I grant a personal bond. So I don't use a risk assessment uh, on my cases. Generally, courts in Texas have not used uh, risk assessment. The most common I'm aware of is the one with the Arnold Foundation. But generally, courts don't in terms of that. Just now, the Texas legislature passed a quote-unquote bail reform bill uh, just a few weeks ago, and they're not mandating courts use, but they're, they called it a public safety report will have to be generated, and it's very similar to a risk assessment in which the judge will have an idea on the criminal background of the defendant and also a risk assessment on whether they'll, they'll appear in court. But um, most judges I'm, I'm aware of, due to cost, time, they, they, they are may, perhaps looking at past offenses and a criminal history at best, but most in Texas are not using a risk assessment. Many jurisdictions still seem to insist on tying a court's financial well-being to production of revenue through fines, fees, and bail. How do you effectively push back against such a perspective? Courtney? I think the most important thing that we do is in budget hearings or um, discussions about the court, it's continually put forth and I continually advise that the court is not a revenue producing entity, nor is it meant to be one. But I do remain sensitive to budgetary realities for the county. The court openly puts out that we're compliance-based before we are punitive in nature and the, the goal is compliance. So if it's uh, if it costs the county money to achieve compliance, then you would think that that would be the over, that would be the most important. That's the overarching goal. So uh, it works out well. And we have to display that with how we administer our court on a day-to-day basis. But that continual uh, advisement that, that is not the purpose of the court, and it will never be the purpose of the court, has gone a long way. And then we have uh, policies, procedures, practices, and programs that reinforce that. Judge Spillane? Two things. Number one, definitely, and I know there are some states where this occurs, but definitely a court, court's actual direct budget or their ability to turn on the lights should not be tied directly to the fines and fees and things that they actually assess because there is an obvious appearance problem. You know, no matter how fair the court is, it appears like, well, in order to run the court, you have to uh, find people or assess all these fees. And, uh, you know, there's always gonna be a question on that. Similar to what we talked about cities that depend on traffic revenue as a sizable percentage of their budget. There's always an appearance problem, right? You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what. So, so I think there's a definite problem. But, you know, secondly, uh, many states like, and Texas is one of them where, you know, there's been studies that have shown states, especially who, you know, they don't have state income tax, 
Uh, they collect a lot of general revenue for the state through court fees. In Texas, if you get a speeding in a school zone case, you pay a hundred and I think $57 in court fees. I call them state fees because they mostly go to the state and it's a way to increase general revenue. And those states, like I think Nevada and others that do not have a state uh, income tax, especially use that. And I think that can be problematic as well. There are court fees, uh, very few, that are used for technology or other things or paying for indigent representation. And, and, and I understand that, and, and that makes sense. But generally, a lot of court fees, they're not going to the court, but they're, they're also just going to the state. And there's really just a way for politicians to collect general revenue versus doing a state income tax or raising taxes. Judge Farr? So first of all, this is an extremely important issue, especially with municipal courts uh, that maybe aren't in an in integrated state system. And you know, ultimately, we need to remember that courts exist to provide a forum for the resolution of conflict and to protect those constitutional rights and interests. They should not be viewed as revenue generators. And I think failure to get that right reduces public trust and confidence in the judiciary as a whole. My experience is that it tends to be more of an issue with local government leaders and not the courts so much themselves. It's not always the case, but I think it tends to be. Um, and education and good communication can go a long way in that regard. Working with, again, those local leaders with, if, you know, here in Utah, we have organizations that the state or excuse me, the municipal government leaders are a part of. We've actually put information in their booklets and presented at their conferences to try to help educate on the purpose of a court. Ultimately, however, I think financial interests can be a big persuader, especially with government leaders that are worried about balancing budgets and things like that. And ultimately, there may need to be structural changes. Um, here in Utah, there's actually been a task force. It's ongoing now for about two years through the Supreme Court and the Judicial Council. I was actually asked to chair that task force. And ultimately, we're making recommendations to change the structure of the judiciary uh, throughout the state. And one of the goals or purposes of that is to eliminate some of those financial conflicts of interest, uh, because there is some concern that as, as long as a municipality that also controls police and prosecutors also has some level of control over the finances of that court, there will always be some level of conflict. And so again, structural changes in some situations may need to be done, but it is an extremely important issue uh, that I think creates, again, those conflicts of interest and doubt in the effectiveness and fairness of the ju judiciary. And what advice do you have for those tuning in to today's episode? Judge Spillane? We, we need to find a way, both in appearance and substantively, that does what bail's about. And bail is about uh, mostly protecting society. So when you think of a you know, a sexual assault, you know, a stranger committing a sexual assault. There's obviously a danger not only to one particular victim, but generally the community. I mean, there's that obvious, you know, the judge needs to take that in mind. And then you obviously the whole uh, appearing in court. The general advice I would give is as much as we can get a, a, away from cash and get more to perhaps on some very violent offenses having a no bond, and then secondly, on all the other cases, have really good pretrial services and spend our money there because it's been documented over and over again. Jail is the most inefficient way to get people to court. Jail is usually not tied in as much with failure to appears. 
doing what, you know, if all of us go to the doctor's office and other places, we'll, we've all noticed more and more we get a text reminding us, show here. And courts are employing that more and more. And there's studies out, I know there's a study out in New York where texting improved way beyond other tools that, including jail, that courts use to get people to come to court. So, you know, my advice is really try to employ other factors than jail uh, to get people to come to court. And I think you'll have more success. Courtney? I think Judge articulated it very well. I think you need to be aware of bail and bond trends, uh, what your current rules are, uh, where your higher authority courts are taking bail and bond um, procedures for your area and your state, and and be aware and and be able to discuss and measure what the impacts of those of those changes are. I think for limited jurisdiction courts, sometimes it's more difficult. There's not as many potentially pretrial services available. Um, and we need to look at doing better at that. But I, I agree with Judge. I think he articulated that very well. Alexandria? Um, yes, I'll just add on um, that it's something that basically people should do their research on and speak to community members about and speak to your local public defender office, like <laughs> Neighborhood Defender Service. I believe that that's where a lot of, there's a lot of confusion, I think, about bail reform that's out there. Um, I do believe um, it's true. Like when I think about my clients, a, a lot of the cases where they've been released on personal bonds, they do return the court. And there's a lot of other things in place to, to, to get them there, certain alerts um, from the court system. Um, I, I, just, I just know from my experience that it is um, effective um, to, to have personal bonds, for instance, um, versus having somebody in jail. Um, jail does not help them be productive once the case is over, nothing like that. And so I would just say, do your research and talk to your local community about it. Peter, can I just add one sure. thing too? Because uh, sure. I agree with what both Alexandria and Courtney mentioned. I think a lot of times we, we need to look at what happens after the bail is set, because a lot of times a bail can make sense on today, Monday. But if someone's sitting there on a possession of marijuana charge for two months and routinely pleas are made for jail time, and that's the only way the person really gets out of jail is pleading to, to set jail time, we know there's a problem. And that's what we saw in Harris County when there was a federal lawsuit. So we need, you know, how, many, how long are people sitting in jail awaiting trial and why are they waiting? Because a lot of times that gets missed even by judges because one judge sets the bail, but then, you know, the defendant doesn't see the other judge where the case is filed till two months later. So we need to look at that. Also, I've seen a number of states, and again, this is costly, but states that have an adversarial or have a defense attorney or a public defender there at the bail hearing, often there are, you know, I think more just results. So perhaps we need to look at that as well. Um, so much of the system, you, you want people to be seen very quickly because judges aren't just determining bail, they're determining probable cause to even hold this person. So you want a quickness in the system, but that's not a reason that there can't be a public defender or someone there in the room as well uh, representing the client, especially with these risk assessments because you know the risk assessment is a tool that's often out there in a vacuum without anyone advocating for the defendant. Liz? 
I would say uh, have good, vigorous conversations, dig deep. I've had an opportunity to work on several reforms in our pretrial release program. And in terms of either instituting or improving a pretrial release program, my advice is to stay in contact and work closely with your public safety coordinating council, your community partners, your legislators, your commissioners, your jail, you know, your sheriff, and all of the people who are affected by the outcomes of these programs because the defense bar, especially the defense bar and the prosecution, because they will help guide a program that's effective as long as you are all starting from the same knowledge base. Judge Farr? And very similar to uh, what Liz has said, I, I think communication is key with those stakeholders, uh, ultimately recognizing that it, it's not a math problem where there's a right answer. Uh, we need to take input from everywhere. And I think the judiciary is in a unique uh, space to lead some of those discussions. We don't have a financial interest necessarily in that as, as others do and, and hopefully don't have political interest. You know, at least as a judge, I'm looking at it purely as a public safety and how to get people into court issue. And so I think we're in a good process to lead that. I think most people can agree on the goals of improving public safety as well as increasing fairness in that process. And if we can just work together to figure out steps to accomplish those goals, uh, I, I think we can be successful with those reform efforts. I want to thank Judge Paul Farr, Elizabeth Rambo, Judge Ed Spillane, Alexandria Poole, and Courtney Whiteside for relating their thoughts and their perspective on bail reform. This issue has raised considerable debate and will continue to do so well into the future. As always, my thanks to you court professionals watching today's episode. You put a human touch on this issue with every defendant with which you interact. Your professionalism and your compassion are what sustains the court's reputation. Thank you. Join us in November for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters, 
They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.